Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's nice to be here. My name is Josh Sofair, and many of you know me. Uh, many of you don't. Uh, I am... Uh, Daniel gave me my bio that I could read that's uh, on his notes there, but uh, I um, am a full-time missionary with Jews for Jesus. Uh, I live and work in Southern California. Um, I've served with Jews for Jesus for about 30 years, um, and my wife and I actually lived in Portland for a year and attended here at Hinson. We were members, um, and so we have a long history, good friends with everyone. Um, my daughter lives in Portland as well, so, so it's nice to be here. So it's, it's great to be back, um, and, and I'm excited to be able to share a few things with you today. I want to kind of jump in um, and get going because there's a fair amount of information. Uh, I will be sharing tonight after the evening service more about how things are going, giving you an update about family and all of that kind of thing. Um, but for now, we want to, I want to kind of jump in. So let me open in a word of prayer, and then we will, we will start. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. Um, Lord, thank you for the, the unity that we have in Christ, that as we can um, remember our, our faith, we, we think of Israel, we think of the places that we read about in Scripture, um, but we think today about the people. And God, we ask that you would pour out your mercy upon the land. Bless our time now. Help us to think clearly in your name. Amen. So we're here to talk a little bit about the war in Gaza. Um, I was planning on coming here. We had been planning this for months. Um, and then in the last few weeks, we shifted everything. And it was really, how could I talk about anything else, honestly? And so that's kind of where we are. And so what we're going to do today is that we're going to, I'm going to give you a background historically of the state of Israel and the, the conflict. I think the history really helps. Um, four key questions and, and then a, a brief message of hope at the end. So um, just in terms of my own background, um, I'm not really an expert in this field although I, I have a degree in history and Jewish studies. I've taught the history of Israel probably 15 times over the years. Um, I've, I've read about this. I've worked within a Jewish environment for 30 years of my adult life. So I've got some background. Um, I know there are people that know more than me, um, but I think I'm, I am qualified to give a bit of, a, of an overview. So. Um, let's just talk um, briefly about what we're going to do. We're going to gain a historical orientation to Israel-Palestine, the conflict, identify these questions, and, and try and offer a little bit of hope. Sadly, I have to limit the conversation. There's a lot of inf information, but we will pause a few times for some questions. Um, but my email's there. And that's, that's my position, that's my email. You, you're always welcome to email me and, um, and to uh, I'll be able to get back to you. So um, what we're not doing, okay? We're not proposing a solution. Uh, no one's calling us 
The United Nations is not zooming in and saying, oh, good, Hinson is coming up with the solution. That's not what's happening here, okay? We're just looking at what's going on. We're also not holding a debate. That's not what's happening here. There's not different sides and, you know, and carving out the positions and all of that kind of thing. Um, we're not using justice or biblical prophecy to carve out a position. I'm not saying that I don't believe in divine justice, and, I, and I'm not saying I don't believe in biblical prophecy, but this morning what we're doing is we're trying to understand what's going on. That's what today and this time is about. And sadly, I'm not answering all of your questions. Okay, so let's just jump in. His, uh, kind of a brief orientation to what's going on. Zionism and political nationalism. Zionism is a movement, I'll read a definition here, this is from the um, Anti-Defamation League's website. The movement for self-determination and statehood for the Jewish people in their ancestral homeland, the land of Israel. For Jews, this movement of Zionism is about safety. In, in Europe and in the Middle East in the 19th century, Jews experienced regular, regular anti-Semitism, difficulty everywhere they lived. There was no place where Jews were safe. And so the movement of Zionism is to create a place where Jews can be safe. It's different than Christian Zionism, which says we want to see God's uh, prophetic uh, uh, promises fulfilled by the Jewish people in the land of Israel. For Jews, that's not really what's going on in most Jewish people's mind. It's not about kind of completing a plan. It's just about being safe somewhere. Um, a few people you'll read about, and if you do this, is uh, someone named Theodore Herzl. He's kind of a main figure in this area. Um, and, and this was really brewing in Europe as they were wrestling with something called the Jewish question. The Jewish question is something that all of the nations of Europe were trying to figure out when they were kind of moving into a, nation, a nationhood status. Where do the Jews fit? So France had the Jewish question. Russia had the Jewish question. Italy had the Jewish question. In Germany, during the Second World War, many of you know the Holocaust was framed by the Germans as the final solution, but it was actually the final solution to the Jewish question. So the Jewish question is what really drove Zionism. So political nationalism. So political nationalism is a movement, and this is uh, again off a, a, a Palestinian website, the national movement of the Palestinian people that espouses self-determination and sovereignty over the region of Palestine. This is neither Ottoman nor Egyptian, or, or this is uh, formed, this movement is formed in response to Zionism. So, there's two points to this definition. 
Um, one of them is self-determination, which means a Palestinian-run government. And second, sovereignty over the region, which is land. Okay, so it's land and authority. That is what is the goal of the Palestinian national movement. So it's return of the land and population to Arab control and the complete eradication of Israel. And you see this in the phrase, from river to sea. If you've seen that phrase used, that's what that means. From river, the river is the Jordan River, the sea is the Mediterranean Sea. So from river to sea, complete Arab control, no Israel, and the vast majority population, Arab. Palestinians have kind of a complicated history. The word, the first time it was used in this modern sense is the early 20th century, 1911 it was used. That doesn't necessarily mean the word is illegitimate. It just means it's modern. There also were no Lebanese people in the 19th century. That, so just because we're using the word Palestinian doesn't mean it's illegitimate. However, it's important to realize that Palestinian nationalism from its inception has always been tied to paramilitary organizations. And that is a key part of the movement of Palestinian nationalism. And we're gonna talk about a few of these as we go on. Okay, where do things start? Things start here, this is the Ottoman Empire uh, before the First World War. And the area that the Ottomans had before the First World War is the part in yellow. And you can see how it sort of, sort of goes all the way around what is today Saudi Arabia. But it includes um, all of Israel, all of Jordan, all of Syria, all of Lebanon, uh, a good part of Iraq, Kuwait. All of that was, was controlled by the Ottomans. And so, how many people were here? Let's see if this works. Yep. Okay, so during Ottoman rule, who lived in the land of Israel? Well, there was about four to 600,000 Arabs and about 40 to 60,000 Jews. So about 10% of the population was Jewish at this point. And what's happening now is that um, we're, I'm gonna start walking you through, so, through a series of maps how things progressed. So, First World War, uh, France and, and, and Britain are fighting, among other people, against the Ottomans. They needed help from the backside of that fight, and they enlisted a, um, a, a large group of Arabs to fight against the Ottomans, and in return, they promised a plot of land, and what they promised was this. They promised a set of a land that went from Egypt all the way up into um, uh, all of Syria, even part of southern Turkey right now. The British offered this group of Arab freedom fighters to this land in exchange for fighting against the Ottomans. In reality, this is what happened. 
At the same time the British were making these promises to the Arabs, they were talking, about the, talking to the French and the Russians and the Italians on how to divide up the land for themselves. It was a complete and utter lie. The British had no intention whatsoever of giving that land to any Arab. And they drew a line, it's called the Sykes-Picot line, and it was a secret meeting, it literally was, you can imagine, you know, cigars filled rooms and things like that. And they basically took a map and they drew a big line and they said the French get the north and the British get the south. This became the treaty in 1916 that um, out of World War I happened and the Arabs in the Middle East felt they were furious and they felt that it was a complete lie and they were used and all of these things. This is a big part of what's going on today in the Middle East. The Arab community still is angry about this. So, in 1917, a year after this, there was something called the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration was uh, a letter, actually, that was from the government of Britain to the Jewish people, to a, um, a, uh, a Jewish man um, who is um, kind of uh, in England named um, Lord Lionel Rothschild, and here is what the Balfour Declaration says. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights of British of political status enjoyed by Jews in other countries. And that was the letter from British Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour. Again, the Arabs in Israel were, or at that point, Palestine, were furious because they felt that this was a lie, the land was being stolen. So, what about population numbers now? So in 1914, it's about the same. A few more Jewish people, you see there was the beginnings of some immigration into Israel, but pretty much the same. That leads to the next period of time that's important to understand, and this is the British Mandate period. After the First World War, um, the League of Nations, the, the precursor to the United Nations, created these, um, these mandate governments, these temporary governments, for areas in the Middle East, and there was a mandate, there was a British mandate of Palestine, there was a British mandate of Jordan, there was a French mandate of Lebanon, all of these things. That was the vehicle that they used. And so the mandates were temporary periods of time, um, and this was a time of, that was a lot, there was a lot going on in Palestine to fight for a legitimate state. Both sides wanted a legitimate state. Both sides were doing good things. Both sides were doing bad things. Land was being stolen. People were being murdered. There was a lot going on. These paramilitary organizations, they were existing on both sides. 
and there were atrocities done on both sides. During this time, there was an effort to try and create peace, come to a compromise in a variety of different times and ways, um, and uh, that went on through the first, um, the, the first proposal was in 1937. Okay, so we start 1920, right? Then we go to 1937, so between there, there was a lot of history, but they are trying to come up with a proposal, and they create a two-state proposal, a Palestinian state and a, 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 a Jewish state, and the proposal was based on this basic premise. There's too many Jews with too many Arabs, so we need to separate them. Who liked that? Nobody. Nobody liked that, um, particularly the Arabs, because the Arabs believed that this was a, an area that was still promised to them. For Jews, the problem was the war in Europe was raging. And Jews were being persecuted and killed en masse and needed some place to go. A year later, there was a, uh, something that the, the British wrote, which is called the British White Paper, which limited immigration. This was the second peace proposal. One was there's too many Jews and too many Arabs. The second peace proposal was there's just too many Jews. And they limited immigration from Europe to 75,000 people over the course of five years. So keep in mind that in 1939, the same year of the, the white paper, World War II begins. And so the fighting and the resistance to the British become even greater, both on the Jewish side and the Palestinian side. Jewish fighters are now fighting against Britain in Israel for their survival. So to give you an idea of population numbers now, take a look at what's happening. Immigration is really, really moving. Um, in 1922, there's 64,000 Jews. In 1946, there's 543,000. And so the, the Arab population nearly doubles the Jewish population, if there's a math person here, you can tell me what rate of, of uh, anyone know? Five times, nine times. <laughs> Amazing, okay, okay. All right, as you can see, that's not my area. So, um, so the population starts really pushing an issue here. And finally, um, the United Nations proposes a partition plan. This was the original partition plan proposed in 1947 by the United Nations, a Jewish state and a Palestinian state next to each other. Um, and the Jerusalem is kind of a international zone and is a bit of an island inside of the Palestinian state. So, There's one more thing I forgot to mention here. Okay, let me just go back. So during the Palestinian, um, during the British Mandate period, um, there was an organization that was formed that has 
had some pretty significant impact for the Palestinian nationalist movement. And it was a, an organization formed in, in, in Egypt that had a vision for a religious political state, an era, a pan-Arab religious political state. It was a very extreme organization that argued for um, something that we see echoes of today. And that organization is called the Muslim Brotherhood and is the parent to Hamas, the Taliban, uh, the, the, the government in Iran, um, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, all of these nationalist groups, this is the, where they come from. And it's this group called the Muslim Brotherhood. It still exists, and, um, it, and, but it's helpful to realize that what they're articulating is a religious political state. And probably the best example of that is what we see today in Afghanistan. Okay? So let me go back here now. Okay, so this is now proposed, um, uh, the partition plan in 1947. Um, it is not accepted by the Arabs, and it is accepted by the Jews, and there's then a battle of independence that goes for the next two years. The battle over Jerusalem was significant and ended up in 1949 with this configuration, and this looks familiar, where you have now the West Bank has this big bend, um, and it's around Jerusalem. Jerusalem is split in half. Half belongs to the Jewish state, half belongs to the Palestinian state, and in 1949, there's an armistice. Jordan takes administrative control over the West Bank. Egypt takes administrative control over Gaza. And there is then a Jewish state of Israel, which is the sort of gray part. So that's where the state of Israel now becomes formed. And this is the original lines, okay? So let's look at population numbers again. In 1949, notice something. What do you notice? The Arab numbers significantly drop because the populations that exist in the West Bank and in Gaza are no longer counted because they're no longer part of Israel. They're now part of another territory currently that's, that's run by Egypt and Jordan, but they're no longer part of Israel. And so now the Jewish population in Israel is 80% and will stay the same until today. Um, this is one of the sticking points that a lot of people point to is that many Arabs were displaced from their homes by Jewish settlers. And that's not completely untrue. There were examples of that, and um, that is part of the story of how this was founded. But the majority of these numbers are there because the numbers of the population numbers in the West Bank and Gaza were no longer counted as part of Israel. Okay. 
So during this time now, over the next um, maybe 18 years or so, um, Jewish population into Israel um, significantly and steadily increases. The country is being built, things are growing, um, Israel becomes a member nation of the United Nations, and uh, a variety of things happen. The next big thing is the war of the Six-Day War in 1967. Because the Arab nations were never um, willing to accept any of this setup, they still wanted to go back to that original uh, promise, um, there was a radical government in Egypt at the time, and they joined with um, uh, Jordan and Syria, but primarily Jordan, and were amassing troops at the border. Israel launched a preemptive strike against, that's important to know, they launched a preemptive strike against Egypt and Lebanon and Syria and drove them back in and occupied the entire Sinai Peninsula, occupied the West Bank, and occupied an area in the north called the Golan Heights. These became safety zones that Israel then used to protect themselves from these nations that were kind of trying to attack them. Now, as you can imagine, this was not, uh, this was not uh, received very well, um, and people were upset about lots of different things. The movement of Palestinian nationalhood uh, took a move. The PLO emerges as the primary spokesperson and voice for the movement of Palestinian nationalism with Yasser Arafat as its main spokesperson. Also, Israel begins settlements in 1967. The settlements you hear about today in the, in the West Bank start here. And so they start settling, particularly in the West Bank, in, in the areas of Judea and, um, and Samaria. Uh, and Jerusalem is, the entire city of Jerusalem is now under Israeli control. Over the next years, the attacks um, on Israelis become more and more violent. Probably the most um, recognizable one during this time was at the Munich Olympics, where 11 Israeli athletes were murdered by Palestinian nationalists. In 1973, oh, let's go back here. In 1973, there was another war. It's called the Yom Kippur War. And the nations that Israel attacked now attacked back to try and regain this land. Uh, and they were unsuccessful. And so none of the borders changed during the 1973 war. In 1979 or 82, the first real effort to create peace in Israel was done. This is um, between um, the, the Arab, uh, sorry, the Egyptian um, uh, president, Prime Minister um, Sadat, and the Israeli Prime Minister 
Um, and so the, it, was a, it was an important time. They were working on trying to create a peace. Um, and this is the Camp David Accords. Jimmy Carter was involved in this. And so um, Sadat speaks in the Knesset, visits Israel, recognizes Israel. And what they come up with is a land for peace deal which is still the basic formation of peace in the Middle East now, where they're going to trade land for peace. And, and they traded all of the, the Sinai Peninsula for the promise of a lasting peace. Um, it obviously has not come to pass. Um, and the, the peace agreement really broke down almost, um, an, uh, almost immediately. Um, two years later... Sadat is assassinated in Egypt by the Islamic Jihad, which still exists now, um, and everything just breaks down after that. Hamas, an offshoot of Islamic Brotherhood, is founded, and they are not at all shy about telling you what they're about. They have published on the internet their charter, I'll just read you a couple of lines from it, and you can find it. Just Google Hamas Charter. There's two of them. They've updated it. So the first one, which was in 1988, says this. Initiatives and so-called peaceful solutions and international conferences are in contradiction to the principles of the Islamic resistance movement. That's Hamas. Abusing any part of Palestine is abuse directed against part of religion. Nationalism of the Islamic resistance movement is part of its religion. Its members have been fed on that. For the sake of hoisting the banner of Allah over their home, homeland they fight, Allah will be prominent, but most people do not know. There is no solution for the Palestinian question except through jihad. Initiatives, proposals, and international conferences, conferences are all a waste of time and vain endeavors. The Palestinian people know better than to consent to having their future, their rights, and their fate toyed with. So, it's clear that Hamas is not interested in a peaceful solution. Okay? That's an important thing to know. Hamas is not working toward cooperation, mutual recognition. Hamas is working toward one goal, which is the continuing of the uh, establishment of a religious, political state that will be in the entire Western Middle East. So... Population figures, I keep going to this. I did this at my church on Thursday, and they said you should write these up there, so I'm listening. Um, so in 1977, there are 440,000 Arabs in Israel, 2.5 million Jews. In 1980, you can see the numbers there, as you, and you can see where these numbers are going. Okay, the next big move toward peace, and it's important to understand, was the Oslo Accords. So the Oslo Accords took place in 1991, 92, 
eventually 93. There was an earlier conference in Madrid in 1991 trying to create peace between Israel and the Palestinians and ultimately Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat sit down in Oslo, create an establishment of two states. There is mutual recognition of Israel uh, and Palestine. So Israel will, will recognize a Palestinian state. The Palestinians will recognize Israel. And there will be an establishment of the Palestinian Authority for self-government. There's these different divisions of A, B, and C. Um, and there was a period of, of hope that was kind of destroyed by two very important events, um, a significant bombing at a mosque in Hebron um, by an Israeli settler, and now the assassination of the Jewish prime minister by a Jewish radical. So the Egyptian was killed by a Muslim ra radical, and the Israeli prime minister was killed by a Jewish radical. And honestly, from then, things have just been spiraling and getting worse and worse. There is a, a more uh, kind of extreme version, whether it's an extreme version of the religious religion or a different religion altogether. Um, on both sides, there are extremists that are not interested in peace and have been kind of undercutting the peace process ever since. The, um, the word that is good to know about the uprising, the Palestinian uprising, is called the Intifada. Um, and this is, uh, continues to grow during this day. Today, um, Gaza and the West Bank are both controlled by the Palestinian Authority, although Hamas is the government in Gaza. They were elected in 2007. And Fatah, the political arm of the palace of the, the PLO is the government in the West Bank. And over the last 20 years, things in Gaza have gotten steadily worse. Um, as an attempt to create peace and or a, uh, a fatigue by the Israelis, in 19, or sorry, in 2005, Israel completely withdrew from Gaza. They removed 10,000 settlers and several settlements. Um, they removed all military occupation. And so Gaza, from then to now, has had no presence of Israeli military forces and almost immediately became a place where rockets were being fired regularly in fact, there has not been a single year since 2007 that there have not been rockets fired into Israel from Gaza. The settler movement has been active in the West Bank. Right now, there are 127 settlements with 465,000 Jewish people and an additional 20 to 30,000 settlers that are in illegal settlements that are just going off the grid and creating something of their own. Of the settlements, one-third are ultra-Orthodox, one-third are secular, and one-third would be considered religious Zionist. 
Okay? And let's see. So this is what the, the, the population looks like right now. So for Palestinians, the formation of the state of Israel is called the Nakba. That's the, pal that's the Arabic word for catastrophe. They believe that Israel was, uh, was never intended to be what it is, and it has been called a catastrophe ever since. So this is, the, this is my kind of 20 minutes of history of the entire state of Israel. Um, I know there's lots and lots of questions. I've got four key questions, four key questions that are part of the, I think, key questions to understand the debate today. And I'll go on to these, but should I pause for a question or is that going to take too long? Good idea. Four key questions. This is just some, I'm going to skip this slide. These are just notes of where the war is at right now, but I think most of us are familiar with this. Um, so again, these key questions, I believe, um, form the basis of the majority of what we are hearing around us. This is not an exhaustive list by any means. There's a lot of nuance to each of them, but I think these are kind of four key questions to be prepared for. I'm not going to tell you exactly what the answer is to these. I'm going to try and help you form a bit of an answer so that you at least understand what these questions are. First, does Israel have a right to exist? This is the question of legitimacy. Is it a legitimate government or not? And in fact, what you would find is a lot of the questions really do come back to this main one. Okay? Second, is Israel an apartheid state and therefore responsible for creating the environment of October 7th? Right? Do you get that? Israel as the oppressor is responsible for what happened on October 7th, not Hamas. This is the gaslighting question. This is the, the husband that beats his wife and says, well, she nags me all the time. She deserved it. It's really her fault. Right? Got it. Okay. Next, is Israel an extension of European colonialism? And this is, this is one of the important questions in the debate. And again, it goes back to that Sykes-Picot Treaty. It's amazing how, how important understanding that little piece of the story is is that from, all the way from, you know, the early part of the 20th century, that the Middle East has been cut up in this really kind of um, non-Middle Eastern way. Everything's foreign, okay? And then finally, is all criticism of Israel anti-Semitism? Are Jews calling, you know, just saying, oh, well, you can't criticize us. And what is anti-Semitism anyway? All right. <laughs> yeah, I've packed a lot into this little um, into this little thing, and I will tell you, I, I I was telling Dan this. 
I never do this kind of stuff. I never go into the, all of these political things. So, But yet, here I am. Um, okay, does Israel have a right to exist? Very briefly, I think the question around legitimacy needs to answer the question, what makes any state a legitimate state? And so you have to ask the question about Lebanon, about um, Israel, about um, Jordan, about Ukraine, about any of these states. What makes these states legitimate? We're not talking about perfection, but um, there are usually factors of internal consent, um, function, and external, um, uh, external recognition. And so the, that is the normal course of events for the building of states. Again, I'm not a political scientist. Um, on the no side, it usually uh, revolves around that Israel was created during illegitimate, an illegitimate kind of way. Um, the United Nations has no jurisdiction, and this, the whole thing was a lie and a theft of land. And the only legitimate state would be an Arab-majority political religious state. On the yes side, it was created through normal means that every other state is created by. There's 70 years of functioning. It adheres to global norms of regular elections, um, sometimes maybe too often, you know, um, and uh, free press, um, differencing of opinions, there's no repression, um, and that the Israeli community in particular um, in many ways is very happy to participate in Israel. Many Arabs serve in the Israeli army, which might surprise some of you Israeli Arabs, um, and that there is actually a claim historically to the land of Israel. Apartheid. This question is about oppression. Apartheid, you know, comes from the example of South Africa. And the idea is that an apartheid government is one that creates a legal um, difference between people of different races. So this is separation of races and preference of one over the other and it's not just uh, passively, but it is written in law. Um, Palestinians are not able to attend this university. It, Jews are, Pal Arabs are not. Um, I want to read you a quote from Human Rights Watch, which is a kind of a popular group that looks at these kinds of things and publishes. They write, the term apartheid has increasingly been used Oh, and I should say, Human Rights Watch deeply believes that Israel is an apartheid state. But here's what they say. The term apartheid has increasingly been used in relation to Israel and the occupied territories, but usually in a descriptive or comparative non-legal sense, often to warn that the situation is heading in the wrong direction. In particular, Israeli, Palestinian, U.S., and European officials, prominent media commentators, and others have asserted that if Israel's policies and practices toward Palestinians continue in the same trajectory, the situation, at least in the West Bank, would become tantamount to apartheid. Um, that's different 
than saying it's an apartheid state. There has been no legal cases um, ever heard against Israel um, as an apartheid state. However, this is the narrative that you hear a lot. Now, as you, as you engage to this question, I think what's helpful is to try to create a difference. So if someone is saying that, maybe to ask, are you, are you saying that legally, or are you just saying that, that what's happening is a form of oppression? So here, defining terms, if at all possible, is, is a good way to navigate through that question. Is Israel an extension of European colonialism? Well, so, so if that was the case, Israel would need to be um, an extension of England or another European country, which it's not. It's an independent country. It receives support, although so does most every country in the world. Um, so receiving support from other countries doesn't make you a colony of that country. Um, so there is a, a fierce independence that Israel has, um, but there's a corollary to this, which is, is what Israel's doing in the West Bank with the settler movement an example of Israeli colonialism? Is Israel the colonizer in the West Bank? And um, this has been a sticky question for a lot of people, um, and certainly there is a movement of settlers in the West Bank that are doing this specifically to thwart any effort to create a two-state system or move land back to the Palestinians. They are purposefully doing this and they're waging this war very slowly by birth rates. Israeli settlements can grow to, for, uh, to qualify under, uh, you know, like, for birth rights. So if you live in a settlement, you have a kid, your kid has the right to then live in that settlement. Okay? So if you have a settlement of 10,000 people and 5,000 of them are women, let's say, or so, uh, and they each have 10 children, now you see what's happening in the settlement. And there are some in the settlement movement that are very clearly doing this for political reasons. And there actually might be, there might be some sense of colonialism in their own mind in, in that regard. Although that's not the case for all. And so um, that is kind of a little bit of a question that's got some, some differing opinions on. And finally, is all criticism of Israel anti-Semitism? So, the phrase from river to sea communicates that Jews don't belong here and Jews need to leave. Um, in Germany, the Nazis talked about something called Judenfried, which is a land free of Jews. And is there criticism that you could levy against Israel? Of course, you can criticize any government and in fact, Every government is worthy to be criticized. But you criticize for what they do or what they don't do. If you criticize for existing, now we are moving into the realm of anti-Semitism. 
So if Jews, if the problem of Israel is that the Jews in Israel exist, then that is an anti-Semitic charge. The definition of anti-Semitism that I usually use is uh, anger or violence against Jews because they are Jews. And so, anti-Semitism comes from a lot of different directions, um, sometimes religious. It's come at the hands of Christians for hundreds of years. Um, it comes politically, it comes racially. Um, there's ideas that Jews are this small cabal of people that control the levers of society and are really running things. There's a lot of what are called tropes of anti-Semitism, but in this regard, when we say Israel cannot exist and we use the phrase from river to sea, what we're saying is that Jews don't have the right to exist. It is, in that case, anti-Semitism. Okay. Just a couple of things. What do you do with all this information? These are just a few suggestions. Work to try and understand the situation to the best of your ability. Um, uh, this isn't the time to run and hide. This isn't the time to put our heads down and just say, well, it's not really us, you know. Think critically about what you hear about both Israelis and Palestinians and be careful. What that means is be slow to make judgments. And it's easy to kind of, you know, quarterback the situation from far away. And so we need to hold on to our emotions, hold on to what we're reading, let time play out, especially for us as Christians in America. We need to mourn the, the, the situation. We need to mourn the fact that there are both Jews and Palestinians dying. We need to mourn the fact that children are losing family. And for generations, there is going to be uh, just an, an amazing amount of brokenness as a result of all of this. And re recognize that this is a, an example of sin. This is not the way life is supposed to be. Pray boldly for God's intervention. Praying boldly, I think, is a good first step. And not just praying, Lord, just, you know, make it all be better. But go after it in prayer. You know, pray loud, pray strong. You know, stand up. Use your arms. That's what I do. I can't, like, I can't even talk if my arms are down here, so. And uh, check in with anyone that has a connection. Now's a great time to reach out to Jewish friends. Um, and uh, this is, I've actually gotten text messages from people here that just said, hey, just checking in, how are you doing? And check in with Palestinian friends, too. Because... It's, it's touching everybody associated with this, even if you're not actually in the land. And consider your posture. Okay, so 
Uh, one of the things that I did um, a couple weeks ago, um, I'm not sure you guys know, but my wife and I lived and ministered in New York City during 9-11. And we were there around, through, for years afterwards. And when you're in the middle of a crisis, things are different. There's like crisis communication, crisis language, crisis posture. Right now we're in the middle of a crisis. I think it's important in the middle of a crisis to behave as if it's in a crisis. So, um, now is a great time to reach out to people with compassion and empathy. Now might not be the best time to stand strong on a prophetic or justice sort of lens. Again, I'm not saying that that isn't, isn't true and isn't worthwhile, but right now in the moment, a phone call of compassion or care right now for us here in America means a lot. And when we step into um, a debate, uh, I think we can maybe lose some of our voice because it just sort of drowns out into the, you know, the ether. Think about the situation you're in and the, your stance. Okay, over the last month, I'll share more about this tonight, but I figure I would just tell you, okay, I'm just gonna put all these down. Um, what have I been doing? I mean, this has just been, I, I haven't even known what to think the first couple of weeks. I just was stuck to the news, I prayed a lot, but I actually probably looked out the window and just stared at things more, uh, honestly. I just, I just needed space to think about what was going on. It was really difficult. Um, I tried to listen carefully to what was going on around me. Um, I reached out to family and friends. I shifted into crisis mode, um, and I treasured the moments of hope. So I got a message yesterday from a friend of mine. Some of you might know an organization called One for Israel. They do short videos of testimonies of Jews and Arabs in, in the land. It's a great ministry. And so a friend of mine, uh, Moti or Mordecai, he's their videographer. And so I've known him for years. I knew him before he was a believer. I was, I, we was part of his baptism you know, in New York City when he became a believer, and now he's there. Um, and he was last week, um, a week ago yesterday, was at his congregation dedicating his first child. So um, their congregation they go to is in Haifa, north of Tel Aviv, and they're dedicating their baby. Um, the pastor of that congregation is um, Shaul Awad, an Arab. His congregation has about 250 people or so. Half are Jews, half are Arabs dedicating uh, the child of a Jewish couple, this child being dedicated to the Lord, that hopefully one day he might follow Jesus wholeheartedly. And that was such a moment of hope for me because there's, there's hope that's, that there's things happening like that in Israel that I think we just get glimpses of. 
We got a video the other day of people worshiping in a bomb shelter because they had to go down because of a, a siren. So there are people in the land that want something different. The gospel is at work in that land. And um, I, I, I think I want to kind of end on, on that note on a hopeful note, and there are reasons to be hopeful for. Again, I'll talk more about, about this when we go, but that, there you go. That's my, my spiel for today. So, um, we do have a few minutes for some questions, I think. Or no, we don't, do we? Maybe just one. One. John. <laughs> uh, I, one of the biggest challenges for me in this has been um, finding sort of reliable news sources, you know, so much of our, our news is um, like conditioned, uh, biased type sources. So do you have any recommendations for like good news sources that, um, yeah, yeah, I, I get it, I get it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's hard, isn't it? Right. I mean, I feel like that in lots of different ways. Um, uh, my news sources change. I read broadly. I go kind of all over the map. Um, I've actually found um, some of some really thoughtful articles. I don't agree with everything they say, but some really thoughtful articles by a magazine called The Atlantic that I think they're they're writing well um, and not responding. You know, a good example is the New York Times reports that a Israeli rocket hits the you know the hospital uh, immediately, and then it turns out. A day later, it was an Israeli rocket. And so it's that kind of like reactionary um, kind of reporting that isn't helpful. So I think that's, I think everybody has to wait a little bit to process the information and find out what's happening. So, so I put this up here and I just, I just wanted to maybe throw this out there as a scripture and maybe a, a, a block of scriptures that if you want to pray, think about, and read through, meditate on. This is uh, from the, in the book of Psalms, a series of Psalms that are called the Psalms of Ascent. And they're traditionally the Psalms that you read as you are on your way to Jerusalem to celebrate a holiday. And so they're supposed to be Psalms of reflection as we think about Jerusalem. And so this is the first, um, but I think this is a great time to use these psalms of ascent as reflections in your own devotions as you think about and pray for Israel. So let's read this together, all right? In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue, a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree? Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Amen. Thanks.